Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the first week of our new series, Women of Redemption. This message comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. For those that have been with us for any period of time, you know we've been in the study of the Gospel of Matthew in the middle of Matthew's Gospel. And uh, as we kind of enter into the beginning of the Christmas season, I'm going to take a break from that and go to the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. And so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses. Now, most of you that are here, you know that usually we start off and we read the verses uh, to begin the, the, the message. And, and I'll let you know, this is a, primarily a genealogy. It's a listing of all these names. And, um, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, primarily for the reason that I'm a little dyslexic and, and I will totally slaughter all these names. I don't know how to say them right. It will be very painful, painful for me to try to do it, painful for you for to listen to me trying to do it. And uh, we're going to read part of the passage throughout our time this morning. So please, you know, open up your Bible, keep it open, uh, and we'll refer to the rest throughout our time. And, uh, but let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we do have to be here this morning, Father, to be able to dive into your word. Thank you for the, for the words that, um, that are here in your word, and Father, for the way that you are teaching me through it. Father, just as I've studied this, and I, I think you've led me to, to, to go here, and Father, just the, the incredible truths that are hidden in this passage that we would, I think, usually want to ignore. I pray that you would bless our time, that you would speak through me and in spite of me, Father, that your word would speak, that each one of us would have hearts that are open to whatever you would have us hear from you today. Father, that we would hear, that we would respond to what your spirit is telling us. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it is hard to believe that we're already into the Christmas season. How many of you already have a Christmas tree up? Um, Now, some of you have done that. I, I will tell you, as far as our family, it actually isn't the beginning of the Christmas season. My wife will tell you it's still Thanksgiving weekend, and we're not allowed to talk about anything Christmas until after Thanksgiving weekend is done. So, so starting tomorrow, we can talk about getting Christmas stuff up. And, and, but the fact is, we're kind of there. As a church, we have a few things up. We're putting big decorations up this weekend. And, and, but even as a church, we're going to be going away from that middle of Matthew and starting the series in the beginning of Matthew um, that's on a Christmas theme. Now, now, I know for many of you, when you think of, of Christmas and Christmas messages, we think of the familiar stories. We think of Luke chapter 2 and, and that very familiar story of, of Jesus being born in Bethlehem or, or the latter part of Matthew chapter 1 where the angel appears to Joseph and tells him that the, the baby is of God and, and that he should go ahead and marry uh, Mary. Mary. And, and so every year we come and we think, okay, if he's going to preach on those familiar passages and and is there anything new that we can learn from these stories that we've heard so many times? Now, I'll let you know, as I prayed about it, I felt this year God calling me to do a longer series on this Christmas theme, but from a passage that most of us don't ever study. And that's the beginning of Matthew chapter 1. Now, now most of us will know that there are four Gospels, four stories of Jesus' life and ministry. There uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Two of these accounts... Uh, Mark and John don't really have anything about Jesus' birth. And then Mark, or, or Matthew and Luke, they both start by telling us about Jesus' birth. So Luke is the longer of the two things. It starts with a birth announcement to Elizabeth about she would have a baby that would be the uh, promised forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. 
And then the angel goes to Mary and tells her about, you know, that she will have this baby. And Luke 2, we have the, them in Bethlehem and the, the telling of Jesus' birth. In, in Matthew, if we study that, usually we start in Matthew 1.18, which is the story of the angel going to Joseph and telling him about the fact that the baby is, again, from the Holy Spirit, that he should go ahead and marry his, his fiancée. And, uh, but that's not actually where, Moses, or where Matthew begins the story. If you look at Matthew's gospel, uh, he actually has 17 verses before that. And he doesn't begin with the story of the birth. He actually begins with a genealogy. Well, let me go ahead and read Matthew 1.1. begins, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, uh, Jesus the Christ, or you know, Jesus the Messiah, we could say. It's the interchangeable words. And it's the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in verse two, we begin this long list of names. Abraham was the father of Jesse, and, uh, or I'm sorry, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And it goes on and on, name after name. Begins with Abraham, goes all the way up, finally ending with Jesus in, in, in verse 16. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then in verse 17, we have the summary statement. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to de deportation to Babylon was 14 generations. From, from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So he tells us at the end, okay, that's 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. And we have this list of 42 names of fathers and sons. And we might wonder, you know, why in the world does he do this? It seems like there's got to be a better way of starting a story. In fact, some of you might be sitting there saying, where in the world are you going here with this? I'm, I'm afraid there's a new visitor, first time, and they're leaning over, and you got me up for this? You know, you said this church was practical. I mean, we've got genealogy. How can you get practical out of that? Stick with me. Okay, there's actually good stuff here, believe it or not. Um, but we have to start with asking the question, why did Matthew begin with the genealogy? That's a very good question. Again, there are all kinds of things about the story of Jesus' birth that we don't know. A lot of things that were never told in the Bible, and it would be really interesting to hear those things. But here he begins with this list of names. And we have to ask why. And here's what we need to realize. Matthew isn't wasting words here. This is written by the inspiration of God, and it's all there for a purpose. It's actually, in some ways you could say it's, it's a foreword to the gospel. And it's saying in this forward, in a sense, okay, I'm going to tell you things here in the very beginning in this genealogy that are going to be clues about everything else that you're going to read in chapters two through on. It's all telling us something about Jesus and his life and his ministry. So let me start by giving you a couple basic reasons why we have the genealogy. And then we're going to actually begin to look into some of the names and we're going to see some surprising things there and some incredible truths. So for starters, I think that the Bible teaches, he, Matthew starts with this genealogy because it establishes the historical truthfulness of Jesus' birth. And he begins right in the beginning, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He begins by saying, okay, here's a record of historical events. He doesn't begin, you know, um, once upon a time. He doesn't begin, you know, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I mean, he doesn't begin in that way. It's, and, and what he's doing here is he's saying, this is rooted in historical events. These are real people. I can track it, trace it back 1,400 years, person to person. 
And this is important because a lot of people, when they look at the story of Jesus, his, his birth, his life, his death, they look at it and they say, well, it might have some history, but it's really a bunch of stories. It's a bunch of fables and they, they convey spiritual truth. I mean, you can't really believe that a baby was born a virgin. You can't really believe that a person was raised from the dead. How could that happen? And what we see here in Matthew is right in the beginning, he confronts that error. He begins with this genealogy, which is about his way of saying, what I'm about to tell you actually happened in space and time. These are real people. Which now that leads to a second reason why I think that Matthew begins with this genealogy. He's teaching us that because Jesus was a real person, and because these are real events, the core of Christianity isn't about advice that, that we're supposed to follow. It's not about things that we're supposed to do. It's about good news, things that, that Jesus has done for us. You see, it's not these core set of principles that Jesus said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to perform. Here's good advice. No, it's the announcement of good news. Now, here's what I mean. When you think about that, advice is counsel about what we need to do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to, in a sense, make something happen. News urges you to recognize what has happened and then how to respond to it. Advice basically says it's up to you. Here, we'll tell you what to do, but it's up to you to accomplish it. News is telling us what has already been accomplished in history. And the Christmas story is not about good advice. It's, it's not an inspiring story that we can read and we can say, oh, that's good advice. We need to do that. And how do we live that out? And, and, and it's an example for us. In fact, think about it practically. If it was about good advice, what advice are we supposed to do? What is it telling us to do? I mean, we just go be shepherds? Hey, if you're pregnant, go have your baby in a barn? No, 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 I think I said, you know, I mean, is it like go pay taxes? That's what Mary and Joseph did. No, that's not it. And when you look at that, if we can't even find the advice it is trying to give us, it's pretty obvious that's not what it's about. It's not a once upon a time story that gives us advice on to live. It's an announcement about something that God is doing, that God has done. And this is significant because when you think about religions, when every other religion, and unfortunately, even in some churches, you know, religion is all about the advice. Salvation is even about the advice. It's, it's about, you know, how you need to work and what you need to do and the rules that you need to keep to keep, make God happy, how you have to perform. But the gospel is about good news, announcing what God has done for us. It was, in a sense, God's way of saying, okay, you could never earn your way towards me. You could never accomplish a relationship with me. But it's, I'm not calling you to try to do. I'm calling you to admit that you can't do, and I'm telling you what I'm going to do for you. See, we see this even in the announcements of, of Christmas. So when the angel in Matthew 1, verse uh, 20, when you see the angel come to Joseph and, and he's telling Joseph about, you know, yes, this baby is from, from, uh, from God. And look what he says, even in the announcement. And she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. What does that mean? For he will save his people from their sins. That's telling us what God has come to do. It's a foreshadowing of the whole message of the gospel of Matthew. And it's also what God has done, what he's accomplishing even in there. It continues, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what God has done. God has come down to us where we could never work our way towards him. He has come to us. And not only that, but he's come to save his people from their sins.
Now, this leads to another reason why we have the genealogy. Because what does it say? It took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. And so you also have the genealogy telling us that, it, that it, and proving to us that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Now, this would be less important for most of us when we look at this and we say, okay, we hear about Jesus and we're going to kind of take it on, on itself. But according to a first century Jew, if, if somebody were to come and say, here's the Messiah, the first thing they would do is they would say, hey, there's all these prophecies about the Messiah. Does he fulfill them? You see, they're going to look at it. The first thing, if Matthew is actually written specifically to a Jewish audience. It was really written saying, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, trying to give evidence and proof to that. And so that Jewish audience would have said, okay, if you're saying it's the Messiah, well, a prophecy said that he had to be a descendant of Abraham, that he had to be a descendant of, of David. Is he? Does he fulfill those prophecies? And what we see is that here you have him beginning saying, yes, he does. Let's go all the way back. Let's go all the way back, name to name to name. You know, these 42 generations, 1,400 years, he fulfills the prophecies. But beyond that, it not only shows that he fulfills the prophecy, but it shows that because in this 1,400 years that Jesus, everything that, in, and that leads up to it, Jesus' story is the center of history. Again, what's amazing here is we read this, and it's tempting for us to skip over this genealogy because it's, it's, it's in this family line. So what? Not a big deal. And, and especially for anybody in the world at that time, they would have read this and say it's an insignificant family line. It's not a big deal. <laughs> But here's what we need to realize. What didn't seem to be important was actually the focal point of all of human history. What was happening in, in, in Israel, this, you know, here we've got Israel, this small backwater country ruled by Rome and Bethlehem, a tiny little town. And what's happening in this little tiny area was the center of all human history. Why? Because God had promised that he would, through Abraham and through David, that he would bring the Messiah that would save the people from their sins. And I want to tell you, at this point in history, the focus of everybody was, what's going on in Rome? What's going on with the powerful people? Caesar Augustus, what's he doing? That's what everybody's concerned about. But what Matthew shows us is here we have this genealogy, and beneath everything that is happening, God is guiding things. He's working in greater ways, in ways that, where you think the power is, that's the illusion. This is where the real power is. Let me even give you a little example of that from the Christmas story itself. Okay, many of us may know that if you look in Luke, we read in Luke that it, we're told that Caesar Augustus, the Caesar, the ruler of all of Rome, sent out a decree that the, that the whole Roman world had to be taxed. And part of that taxation is there was going to be a census that we were going to count everyone so that you had to go to your hometown to, to register to pay that tax. But Luke explains that God's purpose behind that part of the story was that some 400 years before this, the prophet Micah had spoken through God that, that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. And so God moved Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the whole world, to direct the whole Roman Empire to go to their hometown to be registered for this tax so that he could move Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem to fulfill that prophecy. Now, let me ask you a question. Why... Why did God make it so complex? I mean, God had sent an angel to Joseph beforehand. Couldn't he just send an angel to Joseph and say, hey, Joseph, go to Bethlehem. You know, you got to be there for the birth of the baby. Why did he have Caesar tax the whole world? It's to show us something. You see, it's to demonstrate that God then, as he does now, 
moves through powerful nations and he's moving them like chess pieces to accomplish his purpose. And so he had the whole world taxed so he can move two people 90 miles to fulfill a prophecy. And he's trying to show us that not only then, but even now, the most significant things happening in the world history aren't the things that we necessarily think. God was and God still is the actor behind all the actors. He's arranging things for his purposes and he's accomplishing that purposes. And here in this case, what seems to be this insignificant family line and this birth that nobody notices, all of that is God working to accomplish the greatest thing in human history. Now, here's why I, this should be encouraging to you. It doesn't look like Jesus is at the center of human history right now, does it? I mean, how often do you turn on the news and the news is about saying, hey, here's a story of how God's working and God's doing these miracles and this is how God is setting things up. But we don't hear that. It's not in my news. And what we hear is we hear, well, here's the powerful people and here's the, you know, here's the, you know, the politicians and the business leaders and here's what they're doing. And often what they're doing seems to be very much at odds with biblical values. It seems that God's agenda is actually being defeated. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like. But what we need to realize what was happening then. You Caesar Augustus, he's putting out the decree. That's the important thing. That's actually really insignificant. That's just God actually moving him to do his purpose. We wouldn't understand that till a lot later. But God was behind it all. And so in the same way that we realize that what God did then is still the way that God works, there's always an untold story behind history. History is his story. It is God working. You see, if you think back to at that time, the Israelites, they were discouraged. You know, they, they looked around and they didn't see how God was fulfilling their promises. They had these promises of the Messiah, but they didn't see it. It looked like Rome was in charge. It looked like Herod was in charge. It had the evil people. And in the same way, we can look around ourselves and we can get discouraged because we see things seem to be going down and people walking away from God and from church and, and moral corruption within our institutions and, and things seem to be going wrong. But in that, we need to remember what we see here. Don't be deceived. It may look like evil's in charge and God is, is getting lost. And, no, but God is accomplishing his purpose. But it's often through the unseen, the hidden. Back then, even it is now. God was then accomplishing his purposes. It's the same God. He's still sovereign. He's still at work today. Now, there's one more reason that I think Matthew begins this whole account with the genealogy. And it's where we're going to spend not only the rest of our time this morning, but it's going to be probably the central, central idea that we're going to be looking at over the next weeks leading up to Christmas Eve. And that is when we look at this, this whole genealogy actually introduces us to the message of grace that was going to define Jesus in his ministry. That's what we said in the beginning. It's, it's kind of this preface and it's kind of giving us clues about everything that is yet to come. And that's what we're going to see playing out here. Now, here's what we have to understand to, to get this. In those times, in ancient times, a genealogy is way more important than it is today. I mean, how many of you have ever done your like genealogy? Or didn't, you know, look that up? And, and you know, a, a couple of you have. And, and if we do, it's kind of like, it's interesting. It's like we found out some things about our family tree. It's like, I never knew that. And, and, um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to know, right? But it's not like really significant. It's not like your identity is based on that. Well, see, back then, your whole standing was determined by your genealogy. In fact, if you think about our time today, you know, if you've got somebody that's out there saying, hey, well, let me tell you about myself. Let me hear, what, what do I do? I give you the resume. 
you know, here's what I have done. Here's how I've performed. Here's, here's my accomplishments. But in that day, your resume wasn't defined primarily by your accomplishments. It was defined more by your family's accomplishments. Your genealogy was your resume. It was the way that you would show someone who you were. Here's what my family, here's my background. And, and so when we look at Matthew, what he's saying here is that if you want to understand Jesus, you've got to go back not only to his birth, but you've got to go to his family. Look at their lives because they point us to who Jesus was and what he was about. Now in that, think about our modern day resume. When you do a resume, I mean, you have people look over it. You're careful what you put on. And we're somewhat selective, right? And so let's say, for example, you know, you go to a college, you flunk out of that college, you go to another college, you graduate, you don't put the first college on there. You just kind of leave it off. They don't need to know about that. You know, I just want to tell you the good things. You know, if I had a job and I got fired after two weeks, I'm not going to put that job on there. Don't call that person. You know, I'm going to tell them where I succeeded. And, and we do that. And in fact, if someone doesn't clean up the resume, it almost becomes a joke. I, I actually ran across something. Fortune magazine asked people to send copies of the worst resumes they've ever seen. And, and it's kind of funny. Uh, a couple of them, I think, were maybe typos that needed to be cleaned up. I hope they were. Somebody wrote, I was wholly responsible for two failed financial institutions. That's not something you brag about. I don't think that's what they meant to say. Where someone wrote, you know, reason for leaving their last job, and they put down maturity leave. I don't think that was it. You know, it's, I don't think that's what they meant to say. But the worst ones are the ones that I think the people meant to be serious. And you wonder why they thought this was good information to put on their resume to try to get a job. Uh, here are some of the lines. You know, one person wrote, I failed the bar exam with relatively high grades. Yay, woo, you know, that's, that's great. Um, I love this. It's best for my employers that I don't work with people. You're bragging about that? I mean, it's kind of like, you think that's going to help you? Uh, one person said, you know, uh, last job, he put down, I was working for my mom until she decided to move. Okay, that's, again, that's not really encouraging. And one person, my goal is to be a meteorologist, but since I possess no training in meteorology, I suppose I should try stock brokerage. You know, okay, I want to invest my money with that guy, right? It's like, that's, you know. Um, somebody wrote, I procrastinate, especially when the task is unpleasant. You're telling this to an employer, you know, like thinking this is going to help you. Why? Uh, one per another person, given the reason for leaving the last job, they wrote, they insisted that all employees get to work by 8.45 every morning. I couldn't work under those conditions. Um, I, loved, I love this one. Someone wrote, you know, please don't misconstrue my 14 jobs as job hopping. I've never quit a job. Think about that one for a minute. I mean, just, that's not good. Well, this is probably my favorite. It was from a young man who's applying for a managerial position, and he was asked to list his previous experience in leadership. This is what he said. I've led numerous warrior clans and successful battles in the online games of World of Warcraft. That, you know, now you look at that and you say, okay, you can do better. Get somebody to help you with your resume. You want to clean that up. And we all understand the importance of cleaning up our resumes, right? Now, in that time, in your genealogy, you kind of had people cleaning up the resume. And that was the norm. People that had histories written, you'd hire historians and you would take out the bad things that happened and, and, and highlight the good things. And, and so if you had, you know, uh, failures, you just wouldn't tell them. If, in your resume, if you had people that were really, you know, you were ashamed of, you would just kind of skip over, go from grandfather to grandson, you'd kind of skip the guy in between. And that was common. And so now we look at, at, at uh, Matthew and he's giving us this resume 
And what's significant is he not only doesn't skip over anybody, but we're going to see that he actually highlights people. He puts people in that don't need to be there in a way that actually highlights them. And, and there are things that kind of shocking. You, they go against the rules. And, and so let me point out a couple things that are kind of shocking of what he puts here in the genealogy. And the first is that when you look at these genealogies, all the genealogies of that time would have been a male, holy male line. It's father, son. You know, in that time, that would be all that mattered. You would never have the mention of mothers. And even in this genealogy, it is primarily a father-son genealogy of 42, again, 42 generations, 42 sets of male, you know, father-son names. But in that, you have five women. And so you have these, these women in the genealogy, you have four that in the beginning, and then you have Mary at the very end. And the fact that he listed these women, they don't, they don't belong. Why, why are you putting them there? It, it, it actually draws attention to them. Some of you, may, you know, periodically, you'll hear me talk about rules for interpreting the Bible. And one of the rules for interpreting the Bible, this is a, a, a ultimate example of, a classic example of, of this rule. And let me give you the rule in two parts, all right? The first part of the rule is that the Bible is very precise in the way it's written. It's God's perfect and complete mass, mass message to mankind. And we believe that the Bible is God's word. God's spirit worked through the human writers to communicate his, his message without error, even to the very words. And so it's incredibly precise. And because it's incredibly precise, it leads to the second part of that rule, which is the parts of the, the passage that seem obscure or out of place are often intended to draw attention is a key to understanding the passage. So if you're reading something and something doesn't fit, now it's tempting for us because it doesn't fit to say it doesn't fit and we just want to skip over it. But the way it was written, it was that's God's way of getting out a highlighter and saying, notice this. This is unusual. It, it's, it's drawing our attention towards it. Now that's what we're going to see here. We see in this genealogy, 42 men and fathers and, and sons, 42 generations, and then you have these four women thrown in there and, and Mary at the very end. These just don't belong. And you look at that and you say, what is it? It's, it's God's way in a sense of drawing out a highlighter and saying, these are stories that I want you to mention or notice. These are things that are really important. If you want to understand not only you know, the history and the prophecy and all that, that's there. But here's meaning here. Look deeply into these. Well, then we start to look deeply into these, into these women. And what we find is they're not the women you would expect to be included in the genealogy. I mean, you're supposed to clean it up. We're supposed to put the best people in here. But now, I mean, they're, they're wonderful matriarchs of the Jewish history. So you could have Rebecca and you could have Sarah and you could have Rachel. And, but what you have here are kind of the, the, the bad apples in the family tree. These are the stories that you would want to ignore if possible. And, and you didn't need to put them in there, but they're putting them in there, highlighting these things that kind of would be embarrassing. And in fact, if we look at it, you know, three out of the four first ones in there, three out of the four are Jewish. And so if he's trying to prove Jewish, Jesus, you know, pure Jewish line, boy, there's people in there that don't seem to belong. He doesn't have a pure line. And, and well, then we would say, but, but he's, Pure morally, well, well, actually, no, three or four. These, these were associated with the greatest scandals in Jewish history. And so this is not a pure bloodline morally as well. Well, let's look at it. Let's look a little bit at, at some of this genealogy. We start in verse 1. 
And the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David or the son of Abraham. Well, he starts off kind of saying, okay, here's where I'm going. This is how I'm going to trace it all the way back from Abraham, you know, all the way to Jesus. And we're going to show you how he fulfills history, how it's, how it's rooted in history. And we say, okay, that's great. Then we're with you. And then he begins to list the names. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And so we're there. We're all, we've got it. It's, it's, it's going exactly the way we'd expect. But then we get the first curveball. In verse 3, we have in Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of... And he goes, wait, wait a second. Number one, we have these two kids, and only one of them is the line. Well, that's a highlight. That's something different. It's kind of like, notice this. And then by Tamar, you have this woman in there, the mom. And you're like, why is she in there? And if you don't know her story... I'll tell you, her story is a pretty torrid tale. It's, it's not, I mean, it's one of the, one of the kind of the bad apples. It's, I mean, it's, it talks about, you know, sexual entrapment, incest with her father-in-law, you know, kind of all these things. I mean, it's a, it's a, if you've never read it, you're like, it's one of those you're going to read and you're going to say, that's in the Bible? In fact, I'm going to give you a warning, all right? Next week, we're going to look at Tamar. And and we will clean it up as best as we can, but I cannot tell the story without telling the story. And, and it will, it's not a G-rated story. And so if you have young kids and you tend to bring them in the service with you, next week might be a good week to have them in the kids' ministry. I'll remind you of that next week. But, but it is, that's the reality. And we're going to look at that, and it's a, it seems to be a sordid story, but it's beautiful because it's about God's grace. And so here we have this list and, and suddenly we have this woman that you would want to ignore that is now highlighted. And you say, what in the world is that? So then we go to verse 4 and we go back to seemingly name to name. And Ram the father of and Dimbadab, and Dimbadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon. And then again we come to kind of this highlight. This person doesn't belong. Is Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab? And Boaz is the father of Obed by Ruth. And we have two side by side. And we're saying, okay, now what is this? Well, first of all, Rahab, who is she? Well, we're going to look at her story in a couple weeks in the book of Joshua. But let me just give you the way that she's referred to in other New Testament gospels or books. So, for example, she's talked about in the book of Hebrews. Look what Hebrews says about her, all right? By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab the prostitute. Okay, that's how she's remembered Okay, so here you have this Canaanite woman, very pagan area. She's a prostitute living there. Now, again, if I'm going to tell you my family tree, we're going to go through. I'm not going to say, and here is my grandma who was a prostitute. And let me do it again. I'm going to say, we don't generally talk about those things. But here, this is highlighted. And, you know, why do you even bring this up? And then we have the other one was not only Rahab, but then we have Ruth. And, and, and we say, okay, well, Ruth, well, that was a good story. And but there are things even in that story. First of all, she's from the line of Moab, and the line of Moab came from incest. And I mean, those people were very much uh, rejected. I mean, they were, she was not only not Jewish, she was from this line that would have been despised, that would have been looked down on. And, and so how can Jesus have in her, his family line someone who is from, from those people? I mean, it, you know, it's, she wouldn't have been allowed to even come and worship. And how can she be part of the line of Jesus? And her whole story of how she got into this hope in the line of Jesus and how, I mean, that's a great story. We're going to look at that in three weeks. And, 
And so we're looking at this and we're thinking, we're thinking as a Jewish reader especially, Matthew, you're supposed to be like given a good resume. You're supposed to be telling us why, why we should believe in Jesus as the Messiah, about how he has the right credentials. And everything that you're telling us is, they're just hurting the case. This isn't helping. Well, then we, we finally get to what we think is going to be good because then it says, and Jesse is a father of David, the king. Well, that's where we wanted to go. We wanted to know that he is from the line of David. But then it actually gets worse because then it continues. And David was the father of Solomon, Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You know, it's interesting. He doesn't even, he mentions the woman. He doesn't even mention her by name. Now, for anybody that's been in church for any period of time, if you know the story of David, the wife of Uriah, who is that? Bathsheba. And, and so he's drawing it out as, again, this double highlight and saying, I'm not even going to mention her name. I'm going to say it this way because I want you to remember the story. This was the wife of Uriah who David had an affair with and then murdered his friend Uriah to cover it up. I mean, this was like the greatest scandal of, of Jewish history. And so it's not like, oh, yeah, he's from David. He's also from that line and through that, that great sin of, of, of murder and of, of, of uh, uh, of adultery and and you're saying why in the world does he draw this out you know we want to talk about king david but we wanted to forget about that and if we want to think about a messiah who's the spiritual leader we want to think about the guy that that has the resume why are you talking about all these failures and here's what you need to realize matthew is again is giving us the prelude the, of, of the whole gospel he's giving us a clue about where it's going it's and what he's saying here is that if you want to understand Jesus, you've got to understand how God worked even in the lineage. And so here, Jesus isn't ashamed of these people. So who's in his family line? You know, it's Hamar and, 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 and Rahab the prostitute and, and, and Bathsheba and David and, and that whole relationship. And, and we, we've got to look at why is it there? And Matthew's saying it's a reason that it's there because, again, it's telling us the nature of Jesus' ministry. How did these people come into the family line? Was it through performance? No. They all failed. It was all about grace. Even before Jesus was born, God is saying this is the way that God works in history, that it's about grace. So often we think that it's about performance. We think it's about, okay, here's my resume. Here's where I'm good enough. Here's, here's what I've done or the people have done for me. But it's saying that the genealogy is illustrating Jesus' life and message is about grace. It's not about performance. See, everyone back then would have said, well, here's my genealogy to establish my credentials. Here's what they have done. Or here's what I have done. Here's my credentials. Here's how I've performed. Here's how well I've kept the law. And here the genealogy is pointing to these people that didn't keep the law. All of these women would have been excluded from the worship of God based on who they were and what they did. But Jesus Christ takes these people who were excluded from the worship of God based on the law, and he says, now I'm making part of my family. And not only that, but I'm celebrating my relationship with them, my connection with them, because it's not about who they were and what they did. It wasn't about their performance. It's about grace. Because again, the gospel isn't about advice about what we need to do. It's about good news of what God has done for us. Through grace, God accepts us based not on our actions, not based on what we've done, but through what he has done for us. And that's why you can have Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, all part of this genealogy of Jesus, all part of his family tree, because they all are there based on grace. 
Again, if we talked about merit, none of these people would deserve to be there. But the point is that none of us left to our own merit will ever be good enough to earn God's relationship. But none of us will ever be bad enough to keep us from God's grace. That's the message of the gospel. And before God, we are now all accepted as equals into his family. That's what Christmas is about. It's about Jesus Christ coming into the world to bring salvation, not so that we can come and bring God our good record, our good resume based on what we've done, but coming before God in our brokenness because we're all bad apples in this tree and we're all coming in our brokenness and saying, God, I accept what you have done for me because I could never do it of myself. It's that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived the life that we should have lived and then died the death that we should have died because of our sins so that any of us who believe in him would have a relationship with him. In a sense, we could say that these names are included in the line that leads to Jesus. So we look at this genealogy and you have this line that's leading to him and it has all these, these names that don't seem to belong, that seem to, you know, the bad apples. And why? They're there to leading to Jesus so that you can know that your name can be included in the line that leads from Jesus. That by faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. It's not your resume. It's through faith in Christ we can have this relationship that leads from Jesus. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter. It's not about being good enough. And if you're here trying, I'm trying to be good enough. I'm trying to perform. I think God will accept me. No, you will never be good enough. It's not about our resume. It's about accepting the fact that we are sinners and we will never be good enough. But it's not about us trying to follow the advice to work our way towards God. It's about accepting the good news of God coming to us so that all of us are sinners. All of us, no matter what we've come from, no matter what our background, no matter what our brokenness, no matter what our past, no matter what that, we are now invited into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And here in the family of God, what does it mean? None of us will ever be good enough to earn God's favor. None of us will ever be bad enough to exclude us from God's grace. That's the great grace of God. That's the story of Christmas. And so the invitation for each one of us is, I think of John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's not only these are part of Jesus' family because of what they did. It's now the message of the gospel is we have the right to become part of Jesus' family. We have the right to become children of God. We have the right to this relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But it's not because of our resume. It's in spite of it. It's coming and admitting our brokenness before God and saying, God, I accept what Jesus Christ has done for me. And my friends, let me encourage you, if you've never, if you've never embraced Jesus Christ in that way, I'd encourage you and invite you to do so today. It's not about performance. It's not about good advice. It's not about try harder. How good have you been? You know, try try to somehow earn it. And again, if you're here, man, you're trying and you're tired. You can tell me how good you are, but the fact of the matter is every one of us knows that we fall short in significant ways. God knows it. Admit it to him. That's what unites us as we come in our brokenness. We're all the bad apples. So for some, it might mean giving up trying and accept the gift of grace that God offers you. And for others, it might be, boy, we're running away because we feel like we don't belong. How could I ever belong? How could I ever be part of God's family? You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I come from. The whole story of of even Jesus' birth points us towards that. Because none of us will ever be good enough to earn 
his favor. None of us will ever be bad enough to exclude us from his grace. So we accept this gift, gift of grace today. I hope and pray that you will do so. If you do, I can pray where you're at. You know, just God, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus. Not about me working my way towards you, but you came down to me. And you lived the life that I should have lived and you died the death that I should have died. So that, as it says, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.